Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Nora Brostowitz, and I'm a member here. Today's scripture reading will be from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 12 to 25. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word for us today. All right. Join me as I pray here as we look to God's word. Father, be with us now. Give us eyes to see what it is you have for us in this story. Use your word and your spirit to help us more faithfully follow your son. To understand what it is to be a part of his heavenly kingdom. And all the more for our lives to look more and more like his. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what kind of leaders are we willing to follow? To some extent, our answer will probably have to do with the kind of person that leader is, right? Their, their character, uh, the skill sets they have, their qualifications, for instance. And last week, we saw very clearly that in this way, at least, there is no greater leader than Jesus. He is God's beloved heavenly son who is faithful to the father in all the ways that we are unfaithful. So if that was our only concern in finding a leader to follow, well then yes, Jesus is a great choice. But there's more to this question than just who a leader is and what he's like, isn't there? For instance, you could be the greatest leader ever, but if you only want followers who are six feet or taller, then I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be one of them. 
Uh, and you could be the greatest leader ever, but if you're leading people to like a, a country music concert or something like this, I'm sorry, but I'm not going. I, I, I don't, I don't want to go. It, it really matters who a leader is, is the point. It matters what the leader's like, but it also matters what kind of followers they want and where it is that they're trying to lead us. And this is exactly what our passage today is meant to clarify about this King Jesus. Matthew is showing us the kind of followers Jesus came to call and also where he intends to lead them. And so far, everything we've read in Matthew has been introducing us to this Jesus as a kind of king, not just any king, but the ultimate king of Israel and even the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And also, as we've seen, a king not only for Israel, but for all peoples and all nations. Now, in a sense, this theme of God and his kingdom is really the central unifying theme of the entire Bible. And so, uh, to start this morning, I just want to recap that theme a little bit to kind of set us on the right trajectory by tracing this idea of kingdom through the Bible. Genesis 1, God makes Adam and Eve in his image, the first humans ever, and he even tells them to multiply and to fill the earth, and then he gives them what's called dominion over all of creation. Now, even that word right there in chapter one, dominion, it is a kingly word that has to do with authority. In the ancient world, most kings were actually thought to represent some kind of a God and his rule over the people. But in Genesis, it's as if God here is giving this privilege to the entire human race at the very outset of history, so that we would rule and reign as his representatives here on earth. Now, in a sense, it is God then, of course, who is truly the king of all creation, but he's always wanted to carry out that rule and that reign through us, through all human beings, as we've filled the earth and subdue it. But because of our sin and our rebellion, of course, this whole plan has been fractured. It's been corrupted. Humans did multiply, of course, uh, and we have been filling the earth, but rather than filling it with his invisible glory, as we're supposed to do as image bearers, we filled his earth with our violence and our sin. And this was the idea really with the flood. Things got so bad, God had to start all over. Human race had to sort of repopulate the earth through that one family that God preserved through the flood, Noah's family. But then at the Tower of Babel, God scatters this entire human race. He confuses our languages and he divides us into these separate raging nations, kingdoms in a sense, that are marked by sin. And then he says, basically, I want one of those. I want a nation. I want a kingdom for myself. This is so important. God's solution to this cosmic crisis of sin that's filled our world with raging nations, God's solution to that problem, go figure, was a nation, a kingdom. The whole story of the Old Testament from Genesis 12 on is the story of him raising up this nation of Israel from one elderly man, Abraham, and his barren wife, Sarah, eventually turning them into a great kingdom, 
a great kingdom with kings like King David, a capital city there in Jerusalem. And the height of this kingdom was really in the days of King David. This was when Israel was made up of 12 different tribes, which all had their own kind of territory within the promised land. All the tribes were united. God dwelt among his people in a tent that was called the tabernacle. Then after David, his son Solomon reigned as king. Solomon did some incredible things as well. He took that tent and he actually built a real temple. His, his record's a bit more spotty than David's in some ways, but he wasn't bad. But then when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam reigned as king. And it was during the reign of King Rehoboam that the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. And, and, and here's where this gets really interesting. Because the geography of how that kingdom was divided in the Old Testament actually becomes very, very relevant to our passage today. Because it was the two southern tribes that remained faithful to God. I have a map here I want to show you. See the southern kingdom there is, is Judah. That was about two tribes in the, in the old day. And then the, the northern green part was made up of the other ten tribes. All ten tribes in the northern part of Israel, they sort of broke off from the kingdom altogether and did their own thing. And it was only the tribes of Benjamin and Judah that remained, along with the Levites, but they didn't have any territory. They were the priestly tribe. And so when the kingdom of Israel was divided... It was the tribes in the southern region of Judea that remained. Now, Judea is where the capital city of Jerusalem is found. It's also, by the way, what it means to be a Jew. To be a Jew is to be originally from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's to be from this southern region of Judea. The Jews were the few members of this original Old Testament kingdom who stayed when the kingdom was divided. Now, eventually... We know both the northern and the southern kingdoms would fall. They'd be overthrown because they both forgot the Lord. And they both failed to listen to his voice, which is why in Matthew's day, this promised land was ruled by the Roman Empire. There's a little history, geography lesson for us today. Now, here's why all of that matters if we want to make sense of our passage. Because first, if, if you look with me here at our text, The first thing we read is that when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Um, If you could just, let's put that back back up there one more time. You can see the Sea of Galilee at the very top here. Um, It's way up in the northern part of this kingdom that eventually divided off, right? So, basically... The last place Matthew told us Jesus was in the gospel was Jerusalem, which is in the southern part. And we know from chapter 3 that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness in Judea. Both of these things happened in the southern territory, which at the time was still the Jewish homeland. Okay, that's good. Thank you. But when John is arrested here, Jesus flees away from the southern territory of Judea to the northern region of of Galilee. And this is significant because most Jews would have assumed that, look, if you want to become Israel's king, that is the wrong direction to go. It's the wrong direction. Galilee was not where the power structures of Israel were found. 
Galilee was not where the elite religious leaders and Jewish authorities resided. Galilee was not where a first century Jew who knew his Old Testament even probably would have expected God to reestablish his kingdom. And we're going to see this was not just an accident. This is not even just a brief detour. Jesus spends the vast majority of his time here in Matthew in this region of Galilee. In fact, it won't be until the end of chapter 16 that he leaves Galilee And the reason he does leave is so that he can go be crucified in that elite city of Jerusalem. So King Jesus has come to charter this new heavenly kingdom in large part with citizens from Galilee. This seems to be the entire point of Matthew's citation here from the book of Isaiah. He's doing what he's been doing over and over and introducing us to King Jesus by telling us that by fleeing to Galilee in this way, Jesus has fulfilled yet another prophecy from the Old Testament, right? Isaiah, by the way, was a prophet shortly after the kingdom of Israel was divided. When there was 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. In fact, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of these northern tribes that broke away from Israel. The territory that used to belong to these two northern tribes was now the region of Galilee. This is why in Isaiah's prophecy, he describes the region as the Galilee of the Gentiles. You see that? Some translations refer to it as the Galilee of the nations. The point is, this was not the homeland of the Jews. Jews living here in Galilee, were living either among Gentiles or among former Israelites who had defected. So if you thought that this heavenly kingdom would be an earthly kingdom on par with and maybe even just a continuation of the kingdom of Israel, I'll tell you, the rest of Matthew's gospel from this point on is really going to have you scratching your head. King Jesus is literally fleeing from what was left of Israel's power structures there in Jerusalem. He's chartering a very different kind of kingdom in this dark Gentile land of Galilee. But the beauty is we can see a careful reading of Isaiah would have revealed that this in fact was actually God's plan all along. His plan was that a glorious light would one day shine for those dwelling In this region, it says, and shadow of death. And according to Matthew, that light was now shining there in Galilee. It had come in the form of this King Jesus preaching a very strange message. Matthew summarizes the message of Jesus in this way. If you look with me at verse 17, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Here's his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the first thing we should notice about this message is that it is a carbon copy of the message that John the Baptist preached back in chapter 3. In other words, Jesus is showing up here in Galilee to continue the ministry that John the Baptist began there in the wilderness of Judea. And as Greg explained so well in that sermon, John all the while was preparing the way even for this ministry of Jesus in Galilee. But apparently, both of their ministries involved calling Jewish people to repentance because of their failures and because of their sins, both personally as individuals, but also more than likely collectively as well, as a nation and as a kingdom. This is all meant, I think, to inform for us what this kingdom of heaven is is meant to be then. Clearly, whatever the kingdom of heaven is, it is not the same as the earthly kingdom of Israel. 
If anything, this new heavenly kingdom almost seems to be at odds with the earthly Old Testament one. And this may be, at least in view, when Jesus calls the Jews in his day to repent. The, the word itself just means to turn around. It means to go the other way. And it may be that he's calling them, at least in part as well, to turn away from the earthly kingdom of Israel and its complicated history of corruption and infidelity to God the Father so that they could follow him to this new kind of a heavenly kingdom, which is, which is at hand. It was, it was close. Could be that he's, he's basically saying, in a sense, repent, that is, turn around, go a different way, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as opposed to this corrupt and earthly kingdom that we've seen unfolding since the Old Testament. This is more than likely why, when the Jewish authorities came, if you remember, to John the Baptist, back in chapter 3, he confronted them directly. He told them to keep with repentance. For what did he say? He says, for the axe is laid at the root of the tree. In other words, judgment is coming for this earthly kingdom of Israel. It's also more than likely why, in last week's passage, Jesus was put forward as the ultimate faithful Israelite who succeeds in all the ways that the earthly kingdom of Israel had failed. Throughout the story of the Old Testament, the point seems to be that this kingdom of heaven is not the same as the earthly one. If we keep going in that direction, we will find ourselves going the wrong way. We have to turn around. We have to own our sin and our failures, and we have to go in King Jesus' direction. Now, from here, the rest of the passage is about the people who first followed Jesus in this way. In verses 18 to 22, Jesus calls four fishermen, right? Very ordinary, not influential Galilean commoners, as we've been calling them, right? And in calling these men, Jesus does something very interesting. He goes up to these fishermen while they're fishing, and he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, he takes what they currently do as an earthly profession, and he kind of uses it almost as an object lesson to sort of explain what their new spiritual purpose will be in life if they were to follow him. Now, in context, this is kind of interesting, after just reading about Jesus' spirit conception, his virgin birth, his sonship to God the Father, my goodness, a dove just came down from heaven to rest on the man. After reading that, this kind of makes sense. This is exactly what he has come to do, to fish for men. Much like a fisherman who reaches down into the dark and lowly realm of the sea to catch fish, Jesus has come down from heaven to our dark and lowly earth realm to rescue us, to rescue men, to save his people from their sins, to make us down here citizens of his kingdom up there. We're supposed to also note here the disciples' response because in both cases, both sets of brothers, it says they immediately left their stuff, right? To follow Jesus. The second pair of brothers even leaves their father to follow Jesus. And my sense is that this response is also supposed to su surprise us because Jesus basically says what? Like one sentence. And not only does this persuade them to leave their former lives behind and follow him, but they do it like right away. It's, it's, it's immediate right? As if Jesus was just destined to call these men, who will go on, by the way, to be apostles, some of the leaders of the early church. And it was as if they were just destined to follow him. It just seems inevitable, doesn't it, as you read this? 
which really only adds to the mystery of it all because they were, again, just Galilean fishermen after all. Finally, in verses 23 to 25, we read that Jesus went all over Galilee. He's preaching this message and healing people with all kinds of ailments and needs. And it says that his, his fame spread as a result. So at the beginning of our passage, Jesus is kind of on the run. He, he's fleeing, withdrawing to a dark region. And by the end of it, he's assembling this sort of messianic community made up of all kinds of needy, ragtag, uninfluential people, probably Jews and Gentiles, flocking from all over the place to Galilee, of all places, to hear about this heavenly kingdom that he was leading people into. And of course, by the end of this book, over the course of this story, this ragtag group of Jesus followers will wind up becoming the church, which Jesus says will triumph even over the kingdom of hell. In these verses, Matthew is giving us a glimpse into the earthly ministry of this heavenly king, without a doubt, but more than that, he is trying to surprise us, I think, by showing us where the king went and who the king has as his first followers so that we can all understand what it really even means to follow him. It was not the powerful Jews in Jerusalem that he came and sought after in this way. They're the ones, if anything, that will have him crucified. It was these fishermen from Galilee and this crowd of sick and needy people from all over the place, almost certainly including even Gentiles. The whole point here seems to be that Jesus came to lead ordinary people into his heavenly kingdom. Ordinary people. This is good news. It's good news for me. It's good news for us, right? You wouldn't expect this. You, you wouldn't expect him to come and look for fishermen. Why would God come down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and go look for some fishermen? You wouldn't expect it. This kingdom is clearly very strange. It's very unexpected. And therefore, it's important for us to consider, oh, wait, what does it really mean for us to follow this heavenly king? And where is it that he's trying to follow us, trying to lead us? Uh, and so which is, this is what I want to consider next as we try to apply all these things together. If we want to follow Jesus to his heavenly kingdom, here's kind of what that means. Here's what it'll look like. Here's what we have to do. The first thing is this. Number one, we have to leave our former earthly lives behind. Now, this requires a bit of explanation. Uh, not so much because of the text. It's actually fairly clear in the text. King Jesus comes announcing this kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then four ordinary fishermen immediately leave their lives as fishermen behind to follow him. It's pretty clear. But how we apply this to, to our lives today requires a bit of explanation because it does at least seem natural to ask the question, well, does this mean I have to quit my job in order to follow Jesus, Right? And in one sense, I have to tell you, if Jesus shows up to your workplace in person asking you to follow him, yeah, right? That, yeah, that's kind of the idea. There, there may be all kinds of seemingly extreme implications to following Jesus. This is all I mean to say. And so we, we're about to read a long list of them next, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. Very extreme, very strange things we're called to do as followers of Jesus. So in general, we should be slow to dismiss that kind of thing. Uh, maybe in, in some cases, maybe you should change careers in order to follow Jesus, maybe. 
But without a doubt, our situation is much, much different than these disciples. Jesus is not calling us in person to literally follow him, like go where he goes on earth. And we are not apostles. Uh, And so it's not the case that to obey this passage, we all have to go and quit our jobs and, and get into ministry even or something like this. Let's not take this there. But the question then becomes, well, then in what sense and to what extent do we have to leave our lives behind to follow Jesus? And practically speaking, like what, what, what will that even look like for us as his followers today? It's a great question. And I want to try and answer it by first clarifying that when I talk about leaving our former earthly lives behind, I'm referring to our original sinful lives before Christ, right? Which were just earthly in a sense. They weren't really heavenly or meant to be heavenly at all. These are the lives we have to leave behind, uh, the lives that were only about earthly things. What I do not mean, for instance, is that it's somehow bad for us to have an ordinary earthly career. Not at all. The point here does not seem to be that fishing for fish is now bad, uh, that Jesus has come. It's not. However, the point does seem to be that Jesus is calling ordinary people like us, ordinary people with ordinary careers even, to a far more heavenly, a far more transcendent way of life. And like these men, whether it's our career or any number of other things, this will require us to leave certain aspects of our former lives behind in the interest of pursuing this new and heavenly king. In other words, whether or not we keep our jobs as fishermen, so to speak, we cannot just go on living our lives as though we merely exist to pluck fish up out from the sea. So if you're a nurse, for example, or or a doctor today, this may mean for you, you can't go on living your life as if you merely exist to help people with their physical health. Or, Or if you're in sales, This might mean you you can't just go on living as if you merely exist to hit all your metrics and climb that ladder, right? Or if you're a stay-at-home mom, this would mean you can't just go on living as if you merely exist to keep these kids alive and well-behaved, right? So in what ways are we tempted to view our life as if it is merely of this world, right? Those may be the ways we used to think of our life. But now that we've met this heavenly king, that all has to change. How, right? In what ways are we tempted to view life as if it's merely of this world? As if our homes, for instance, are the closest thing we'll ever get to heaven, right? And we should all kind of barricade ourselves in them so we can avoid all those wicked Galilean commoners out there in the world. No, see, to follow King Jesus, we have to leave that kind of life behind, We have to start viewing our homes as sort of earthly outposts of heaven where all kinds of hurting people can come and experience real spiritual healing. Or or maybe we're more tempted to view this church as if it's a religious safe haven for people who are, you know, basically like us so that we can feel better and safe and secure kind of being in the group. No, to follow King Jesus, we'll have to leave that kind of life behind and start viewing our church as, again, an embassy of heaven into which God is calling all kinds of sick and hurting people from out there in the world, even strange places like Galilee. We are a ragtag group of sickos like this crowd here, all desperately in need of a heavenly king. 
So these are the kinds of changes that will be required of us if we want to follow King Jesus. But next, maybe you're thinking, listen, all this heaven stuff, it sounds great, okay? But listen, my life is really hard. And I have a lot of barriers here. I have a lot of needs, a lot of sorrows that, that just tend to keep me from that kind of life. Well, thankfully, next we're also going to see in this passage is that to follow King Jesus, we also have to bring our needs and sorrows to him. Bring them to him. In this story, we see all kinds of people flocking to King Jesus with all kinds of needs. Various diseases and pains, Matthew tells us. Uh, demonic possession, seizures, paralysis. And Jesus healed them all. This kind of healing, this kind of needs meeting, is clearly, it's just, it's part and parcel of his earthly ministry. His ministry is a ministry of both word and deed. He has come to announce something. He has come with a message to preach, namely that the kind of heavenly kingdom, it's at hand, it's close by, and now, especially now that he's here. But to demonstrate the incredible power of this heavenly kingdom, notice Jesus goes to this dark place in the world where there's tons of needy people and he helps them in all kinds of miraculous and supernatural ways. Now, this shows us on one hand the extent of Christ's compassion for us. He really loves these earthly fish he's come to catch, right? He cares about the deep, painful suffering we experience as a result of life stained by sin in a fallen world. He cares, which is really kind of the other side of the coin here. Jesus' ministry of helping and healing, it's also meant to demonstrate his heavenly power over the curse of sin and death. Think of it this way in light of the whole story of Scripture, right? We were supposed to live forever with God. That's how it was supposed to go. We weren't supposed to get sick or be possessed by demons and then die. The only reason anyone does is because we have rebelled against God. It's because of sin and its effects in the world. And so with every miraculous healing, it's as if Jesus is basically saying, listen, I have the power to reverse all of that. I have the power to roll back the effects of sin and its curse because I am the king from heaven. And here's what I think this means for us. I think it means that Whatever troubles you're facing in your life today, whatever diseases or pain or distress you're experiencing, those hardships are not a barrier to entering this kingdom. They're not a barrier to following Jesus. If anything, they may be the thing that God uses to draw you near to the king so that he can lead you into this kingdom. Church, those with small influence and great needs are not cast down or set aside in this kingdom. We are welcomed in with open arms. And more than that, we are loved by the king. We're loved by the king. So friend, do not wait for your life to get sorted out so that you could consider following Jesus then. Don't do it. Don't wait for your marriage to turn around uh, or for your financial situation to improve 
or for that addiction to be in the rearview mirror before you follow Jesus. No, bring all of these burdens with you as you follow him. Take your sorrows, climb up that mountain, go sit at his feet and listen to what he's about to say in chapters five to seven in the Sermon on the Mount. But listen, be prepared. Be prepared because he does not promise to make the poor in spirit rich in spirit then and there. He doesn't. No, instead, next week, we're going to see he's going to teach us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I told you, this is a strange kingdom. It's strange. For the Christian, it is not always in this life that we're promised eternal comfort and peace. Praise God, sometimes he gives us these things anyways. He's certainly capable of doing that. But to be a Christian is to be a follower of this heavenly king who is leading us to a heavenly kingdom. And we are going to see that the road to that heavenly kingdom is often marked by pain. It's often marked by suffering. In fact, if we keep following this King Jesus in the chapters ahead, we're going to see he will eventually lead us to a cross. But on the other side of that cross is a new and everlasting life, a life that is free from all pain and all sorrow and all sin. So church, we can bring our deepest needs and sorrows to him now. And even if he doesn't deliver us from them now in quite the way he does here, he promises to deliver us from them in time. And when he does, that deliverance will be decisive. That deliverance will be eternal. And in the meantime, church, we have a king who cares. We have a king who has come to bear the weight of our burdens for us on the cross. And so don't let those sorrows keep you from him. Bring them with you as you follow him. And finally, if we want to follow this heavenly king into his kingdom, we also have to join him in fishing for men. Join him in fishing for men. I'm going to cut right to the chase here. If we want to follow this heavenly king to his heavenly kingdom, then we have to have room in our lives to go and get people and bring them with us to the kingdom. As I've already said, this ragtag crowd of Galileans will go on to become the church, and, and church, that right there, the church is what we are today. We exist to carry on the ministry and legacy of all that Jesus passed on to this ragtag crowd in Galilee. Every local church on earth today exists to fish for men together in the name of King Jesus. And this looks like us going out into the world uh, to our neighbors, to all nations even, to meet needs to announce the good news of King Jesus, to make disciples, to baptize them into the church, and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded, like he's about to hear in chapters 5 to 7. This is our mission. And, and it's not just my mission, because I'm the pastor, or the elders' mission, because they're the shepherds and leaders of the church, or the staff's mission, because they work for the church. No, this is the life purpose of every individual who follows this heavenly king to his kingdom. It's also the reason we want to multiply churches, by the way. 
not just here in Milwaukee, but around the world, rather than just making the biggest, best church we possibly can here in Brookfield. Because the whole world, if you will, it's like one big ocean filled with fish that desperately need to be caught, to be rescued from this depths of their sin, to be reeled in, if you will, to a heavenly kingdom. If you truly follow King Jesus, then you have a part to play in all of this. You are called to go and get people in this way to help them follow Jesus. So how is that going? How is that going? Do we have room in our schedules even to do this? Do we have room, frankly, in our hearts for these people? Finally, this is the reason we're planting a new church here in Milwaukee as well. It is. And it is the reason why, frankly, some of you should consider leaving this church to go be a part of that one. You might be thinking, well, why? Right? I've got a great fishing pole here. It's going great. There's a certain mentality, right, we can have that would lead us to say, why in the world would I do a thing like that? Why would I leave this church and go start some new one, right? Starting it from scratch. That sounds hard. It will, it will, it's going to require a lot of my time. It's going to require a lot of my energy. The process, it just seems kind of unpredictable. It's, it's hard to know like what that church is even going to be like, what it's going to become. How's it going to be different from, from this one, right? There might not be as much parking. <laughs> you know, we just got this building with 80 parking spots. We already have another parking problem, right? So we're not, we're not there yet. We're not in heaven. We still have to work on these things. But if you do go, I want to tell you, if you go and you help to start this new church, I want to tell you, it will be hard. Uh, From my own experience, I can say the church will probably develop a bit slower than you're expecting it to, and not because it happens slowly even, (laughs) but because we are sinful and impatient people with a tendency to compare our life and ministry to others. It will feel slow. There will be weeks when you wonder if God is even doing this Uh, There may may be pandemics and such. Uh, But if you leave your former earthly lives behind, if you bring your needs to the king, and if you join him in fishing for men by faith, listen, some will be saved, you will be blessed, and King Jesus will be glorified on the earth. He will. Friends, whether we, we join this church planting team or not, frankly, we, we all have to remember we are on a fishing trip here. This is a fishing trip, not like a cruise, right? It's a fishing trip. This is a joy. This is an honor, and this is part of what it means to follow King Jesus. God has come, church in human flesh to rescue us, to reel us into his heavenly kingdom. And if we are to follow him as our king, then we are called to join him in fishing for men. But I want to ask you, is this the kind of leader you want? Are we the kinds of followers he's looking for, maybe most importantly today? Do we really want to go where he is leading? To to celebrate this and to respond,